All right, flip a few pages over or scroll up a couple screens to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We will be reading verse 4. We will not be getting through verse 4. But pastor, it's one verse. I know. I know. The biblical responsibility of fathers to their children. What, let me ask you a question. What makes a real man? What qualities, what must he have? What, what, what must he do to be a real man? A 2001 book by John Eldridge titled Wild at Heart suggests and would have you believe that a man's identity is found out there in the wilderness. And now I don't mean Tolt Hill or that's Tolt Hill, Tolt Highlands. Out in the wilderness, a man can prove he isn't a sissy. Out in the wilderness, he's not goaded into getting in touch with his feminine side. If, if you are curious, my feminine side is right there, and her name is Jennifer. Out in the rugged wilderness, a man can prove himself to be a real manly man. He can, he can prove his masculinity. Not only can he, will he bring home the bacon and provide for his family, these are given in the responsibilities of men, but he can express out in the wilderness his, his ruggedness, his, his rugged manliness. He can wear tattoos or have tattoos and he can drink craft beers and he can wear plaid shirts like John had this morning. And I don't know where he is, but that was a manly thing he did by wearing, there's that plaid, manly plaid shirt and everyone turns. John's like, I will never step out again. Out in the wilderness, he shows that he knows how to swing an axe. On the, out on the wilderness of the asphalt, he rides his motorcycle. In the wilderness of his garage, he works and maintains his own car. Out in the wilderness, he shows that he knows how to fire a gun. And he uses his gun to hunt. And if he's a real manly man, he uses a bow and a knife to hunt. A real manly man is a man of the field like Esau. And it's a it's just a bonus if he's a, if he's hairy like Esau and if he smells like Esau and if he presumably eats Esau's diet of steak and potatoes. I just think that's what he would eat. That's what that is what Eldridge and in Wild at Heart would say makes a real man, is a man who does those kind of things. Pastor Richard Phillips, in his book, Masculine Mandate, asks a very good question in response to this assertion by Eldridge. He says, if a man is to find his identity out in the rugged wilderness, why then did God 
create man and then put him in the garden and in the garden tell him to work and keep it. Seems that it seems to Phillips and it seems to me that man's identity is to be found in the context of where God tells him to be and what God has told him to do. He is to be in his garden working and keeping it. And in chapter 2 of Phillips's book, he defines what it means to work. And th- there's some overlap between work and keep. I want to focus on this word work for a second. To work, as Phillips defines it, is to labor to make things grow. It is to, nur- it is to be nurturing, cultivating, tending, building up, guiding, and ruling. And that word stuck out to me because it is, that is precisely the idea behind the word that Paul uses twice in this section in Ephesians. In chapter 5, verse 29, husbands are to nourish their wives as they do their own bodies. They are to provide what is required for growth. And here we see this word again. Our English translations don't translate it the same way, but it's the same word where fathers are to bring up or raise their children in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. They are to nourish their children in spiritual matters. They are to nurture and cultivate, tend to, care for, and guide both their wives and their children. Philip says the man's call to to be this cultivator, to cultivate in his garden, which he points out very helpfully, includes not only things and materials, but people. He says it means we are to be involved in the hearts of people placed under our care, people who work for us, people that we teach and mentor, and most especially, and I would say most critically, our wives and children. Philip says, a man's fingers should be accustomed to working in the soul, in the soil of these human hearts that he might accomplish some of his most valuable and important work in his life. He says, this biblical mandate to be cultivators explodes a great misconception about gender roles. Namely this, that women are the main nurturers, while men, they are the strong and silent type. They're the Stoics. They don't get into that emotional stuff. The Bible calls men, says Phillips, to be cultivators, and that includes a significant emphasis on tending the hearts of those given into their charge. I hope we can all see by now that the biblical expectation for men is that they is that they're 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 being a nurturer, they're being a culture cultivator, that this is not a sideshow. This is not some tertiary periphery responsibility. This is an absolutely central responsibility as it relates to what God expects us and calls us to do as Christians, Christian husbands and fathers. Absolutely central. And so in our text today, Paul gives fathers two critical charges that they must 
must, must, must be adhering to if they are to faithfully nurture and cultivate the lives of their children. And we'll we'll read the verse right now, and you'll see uh, it's fairly simple to, to get our outline. There's a negative and a positive, a thing fathers must not do, and a thing fathers must do. Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Is that the negative or the positive? Thank you. But, in contrast, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first, what fathers must not do is provoke their children to anger. Fathers must not provoke their children to anger. Paul starts off our verse, he says fathers, and let's stop right there for a second. Some commentators say that, that Paul is using this term generically to refer to both parents. In uh, Ephesians, uh, he, uh, Hebrews 11.23, when it says that Moses was hid by three months by his parents when they saw that he was beautiful. That is actually the word fathers. But we know Moses didn't have two dads. So it was used there in a generic sense to refer to his to to parents. But Paul's not doing that. Rather, he's singling out literal fathers. He's putting he's putting the spotlight on them and he's saying, dads, dads, I have something to say to you about the way that you parent your kids. Paul has already used the 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 generic word for parents in verse one. Obey your parents in the Lord. And in verse 2, he uses a citation from the Old Testament that referred to mothers and fathers. I would say that if Paul wanted to address both parents here, he's already demonstrated he knows how to do that. He's demonstrated he knows how to refer to parents in a generic way, and he knows how to do it uh, specifically to mothers and fathers. And that's not what he's doing here. I think it's clear he is... He is primarily singling out dads. Now, mothers, can you just check out? No. Mothers do have something to gain by hearing and applying what Paul is saying here. Paul's not just addressing dads with the implication that, you know what, moms, provoke your kids all you want. doesn't matter. No, no, Paul's not not saying that. Some... Maybe a mom here needs to hear that. I don't know. But he is focusing on dads. He's speaking primarily to them. Why? Because they are the heads of the family. They are the ones who are ultimately responsible for for their children being educated and disciplined. And I would say that they have a greater tendency, fathers specifically, ha- have a greater tendency of undermining the spiritual growth of their children by provoking them to frustration. Generally, men are much more prone to use provocation than women are. That's just, that's just the way that we are. Women are... Mothers are typically much more naturally nurturing and soft and gentle and compassionate and sympathetic. There are some nurse ratchet moms out there, yes, but they're not very common, thankfully. 
So Paul is addressing fathers, and what does he say? To those who are more prone to provoke their children to anger, what does he say? Don't provoke your children to anger. To provoke is to, it's to instigate, to, to instigate a negative emotional response, to exasperate, to make angry. It is to speak to someone, to act towards someone, to treat someone in such a way that they are frustrated, agitated, irritated, and or discouraged. And in fact, in the parallel passage in Colossians, Paul uses a different word to convey the exact same idea. Uh, uh, says, don't exasperate your children lest they become discouraged. S- different words, same idea. Do not provoke your children. Now, I'm pretty sure that this instruction, that, that Paul's words here came across uh, rather as a surprise to his audience. Because in Jewish and Roman culture, fathers held all the power. And maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, Aaron, you've been, you've been preaching on this for a couple of weeks. You've told us that the fathers are the heads and the fathers are those in authority and, and, and they have the responsibility to lead and et cetera, et cetera. And yes, but there is, a, there is a, an aspect or an extent of the father's power in the old world that you may not be familiar with. And it, was, it is this law called patria potestas. Patria potestas, the power of the father. Sounds like a great title for a movie or something. Patria potestas was the law that said, and this was uh, put in place by uh, Romulus or Remus, the, uh, the guy who founded Rome in 7th century B.C. And the law said that the father owned everything and everyone in the house. He owned it, owned them by law. All things and all people in the house, in the home and in the family were his possession. And he had the right to do whatever he wanted to do with the things that were his. And it was very common, very typical for fathers to manage their homes in a very heavy handed, authoritarian, top down way. So absolute was his power in the home that even if he gave personal property to his adult son who is living on his properties and still technically in his house, he could give him personal property and at a moment's notice, at the drop of a hat, instantly reclaim it, take it back legally. It, it never really left the father's possession, truly. It was just on loan, you could say. So extensive, so absolute was his authority over his slaves, over his children, and even over his wife, that if he felt so inclined, torture and capital punishment were within his rights. Maybe some of the kids are asking, what's capital punishment? Well, that's what happens when dad cooks dinner. Now, so what I, what I think people 
expected Paul to say, with, with, with Paul having, uh, uh, having addressed what Christian conduct in the family looks like, and, and in, in a setting like that, where, where patria potestas, it's, it's the law of the land, and it's been, it's been exercised for, it by this point, seven centuries. It was deeply ingrained in the culture. And what I think what, it, what everyone expected was, was for Paul to continue speaking to the children, and having told them to obey and, fo- and, and, and honor their fathers, to further admonish them not to do anything that might provoke their fathers to anger. That just seems like the, the next logical step. If fathers were the head of the home, which they were, and if they held that kind of power and authority, which they did, then it makes sense to warn and caution the children from doing something to instigate or arouse their father's wrath, to provoke them to anger and to drive them to frustration in agitation where they will respond accordingly. There was plenty of biblical precedent to, to support and frame such an expectation, namely that Paul would, would continue admonishing children not to provoke their, their fathers to anger. The Old Testament is chock full of examples of actually this word, the word for provoke, the word for, for to make angry. It is, the, the Old Testament is chock full of this word used to describe Israel provoking God to anger. Maybe you can think back a couple months ago when we were reading through Deuteronomy and you would remember that at the end, just before he died, as he is going through the law again, in a, in a very pastoral tone, Moses repeatedly warned the children of, of Israel, don't provoke the Lord your God to anger. And he says as much, Deuteronomy 4.25, 31.29, And Joshua says the same thing to, to my memory twice. Don't provoke the Lord your God. Don't say you're going to keep his covenant and then turn around and break it. Say what you mean and mean what you say. And if you say you're going to be God's covenant people, then keep the covenant and stop breaking it so as to provoke him to anger. And you know what Judges says about Israel? The book of Judges. The book of Judges says Israel provoked the Lord their God to anger. You know what the prophets inform the people time and again? You've broken the covenant. You're provoking the Lord your God to anger. I think it would have been fully expected for Paul to say something to the children in these Christian families, much much in the same manner and spirit of Moses and Joshua and the prophets who, who wrote and, and ministered to Israel, for Paul in the same way to speak to the children of, Israel, uh, of these families, stop provoking your fathers to anger. Like in, in, the, in the spirit of Bob Newhart, just stop it. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T, stop it. Stop the sinful, childish behavior that brings down wrath on your heads. 
I think that's what everyone expected Paul to say. But is that what Paul said? I got one in the back going, no. Is that what Paul said? Is he is he further chiding the children? Is he reprimanding the children? Is he preaching hail, fire, and brimstone on the children? Got one more. Who will join these brave souls? No, he's not. He has finished speaking to children, and he has now zeroed in on fathers as those in authority, as those in power, and as those who could and did misuse that power and authority. And he says to to fathers, and perhaps this is perhaps the first time that that fathers have that these men would have been told these as grown men, as as heads of the families, they are hearing perhaps for the very first time, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't do it. Stop it. If if you if you are doing it, stop it. If you haven't done it and you're thinking about doing it, don't do it. Now, there are many things that we dads do for our kids that are good and right and just and loving that nevertheless still irritate and discourage our kids. And on the surface, sometimes it sure feels like trying to be a good and responsible parent is enough in itself to provoke your kids to anger, right? Got one snicker. We try to hold them accountable to the rules with some measure of consistency. We require their respect. We discipline them. Hebrews twelve, six to eight says that discipline proves that we love our kids. Proverbs thirteen twenty four He who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Discipline proves that we love our kids. And I, I talked about last week briefly what the difference between discipline and punishment was. We don't punish our kids because we love them. We discipline our kids because we love them. We take away privileges. We apply consequences. We pull them aside and we look them dead in the eye and we try again and again and again and again by any means necessary to make a connection with them. And we try to teach them important life lessons. If all you do is just yell at them, spank them, take stuff away, break stuff, whatever, that's more on the punishment side. If you're trying to communicate principles and values and you're trying to impart, uh, promote learning and growth, now you're in the discipline category. Over and again, we tell them things they don't want to hear and frankly, things that they don't want to believe. Truths about the world, truths about themselves. Over and again, we tell them things that we get tired of saying and they get tired of hearing. We are trying 
again and again and again and again and again in the hope that some of it will sink in. And we are trying to shape our kids for the better out of love and care and concern for their welfare. And sometimes still our efforts irritate them, frustrate them, agitate them, discourage them. All of these things that are technically on the surface level within the, the scope and the definition of what it means to provoke them. But that in itself, those things, is not what Paul is talking about here. Disciplining our children is not what Paul is talking about here. What he is talking about is the propensity that we sometimes have to sinfully apply our authority. To sinfully apply our authority in such a way that frustrates and discourages our kids. Sometimes we can do everything right or mostly right. Sometimes we can manage our household and manage our kids and we deal with our kids appropriately and justly and fairly and compassionately. Sometimes. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we can be harsh and unbending and unsympathetic. We can even be callous. We can be impatient, neglectful, hypocritical in the way that we carry out and exert our authority and our leadership. Paul is saying, dads, stop it. Don't do that. And don't start doing that. Don't allow sin to compromise how you wield your God-given authority and exercise your God-given leadership in the home. Dads, don't bring down the very ones, the little ones that you are supposed to be bringing up. Now, in a little, in, in, in a, a tongue in cheek manner, I would like to ask you that, or tell you that if, if you are looking for ways to provoke your kids, if, you, if this is what you want to do, if you want to provoke your kids, if you want to frustrate them, if you want to discourage them and undermine the development of their faith and their growth in godliness and their walk with the Lord, then here, here are nine easy steps that you can do. And I guarantee you, you will get what you are asking for. Nine easy steps to provoke your kids to anger. Okay, good. First, be harsh with them. Be harsh. And I, I hope everyone is dialed in and can tell I'm, I, I'm being a little sarcastic. I don't want anyone zoning out and then halfway through coming back and thinking of what I'm saying is you're supposed to be doing. No, no. Tongue in cheek here. Be harsh with them. See that being a hammer or a wrecking ball or dynamite in the way that you speak to and handle them is a spiritual gift. And really, while you're at it, any, any kind of um, um, any piece of demolition equipment makes an excellent metaphor for the way that you are to relate to people and the way you are to parent your children. Be a bulldozer. I don't think you can get much bigger than that. Be a brute. Be insensitive. 
to your children. Rule over them with an iron fist. Impulsively and without warning, exert your power over them. Remind them who's in control. Now, no, no one should be smiling too much. In Mark 10.42, Jesus referred to the common knowledge that Gentile rulers lorded their authority over their subjects, that kings and monarchs and governors kept the people under their boots, and they wasted no hesitation reminding the people of their position and power from time to time. Learn from that example. Model that example. Forget that Jesus said not to be like that. And overlook that, that he said that, that the way to greatness is through selfless serving and humbly sacrificing to, to provide for those whom you love. Forget he said that and forget his example. Are you, are, are you writing notes? You're not going to go and do this, right? Okay, okay. Rather, see that the way to greatness is through self-serving exertions of power and, and in leaving behind a trail of destruction, broken relationships, and burnt bridges in your wake. Be harsh with your children if you want to provoke them. Secondly, be unclear. Be unclear with them. Don't let your expectations be clearly known. Or easily understood. When you have to communicate with them, be vague. Be vague so that your words can be more easily misunderstood. Either say too little or say too much and, and, and dominate the conversation and overload them with so much unimportant, trivial, and superfluous information that the important bits, the things that they really need to know, gets lost in the morass. Be unclear with them. Third, be impatient with them. When your kids don't measure up in the time frame that you'd like, get mad. Get temperamental. Drop that hammer and dispense indiscriminate justice. Forget that the Bible presents shepherding and discipling as a time-consuming process that requires patience and perseverance and sacrifice and grace and that many times we are told that we are given of a, a, a parable which involve or illustrations which involve a farmer who plants seeds and works the ground and that is it is only after time has passed that he enjoys the fruits of his labors forget all that instead Get impatient, become irritable, rash, rude, negative, sarcastic, and demand immediate results. Let your poor attitude become palpable, tangible. Say and do things unbecoming of a Christian. Raise your voice and yell and be intimidating to make your point and shut them down. Be impatient with your kids. Fourth, be unforgiving with them. Let them know that you have chronicled, you have made a record of everything that they've ever done and that you're still doing so and that the next slip-up will cost them dearly. 
Assure them that you will not suffer fools in your house and that you are not one to be crossed. And if and when they do cross you or go behind your back, you will find out about it and the repercussions will be relentless. Be be without grace and unforgiving towards them. Fifth, be unreasonable. If you want to provoke your kids, set expectations up so high and demand things that are clearly beyond their capabilities. Require them to do things that you know that they cannot do on their own. Load them up with so many responsibilities that they are guaranteed to feel overwhelmed. Set the bar so high that the discovery of anything less than perfection in their life, like their grades, their behavior, the way they represent the family name, the way they treat opportunities of privilege and responsibility. Set the bar so high that as soon as you discover that they have slipped up, that they will be paralyzed with fear because of how you will respond. Teach them that they will not receive help or grace or leniency from you. Just as a side note, if I can put the, the sarcasm aside for a second, I had a friend in, in uh, my elementary years up through junior high, and he got excellent grades, uh, best, best student I, I'd ever known, and he had, a, I think, a C-plus on a test one time, and he was mortified. He was, he was morbidly fearful of confronting his dad, and that stuck with me. Be, un- be unreasonable with your kids if you want to provoke them to anger. Six, be critical. Always find fault in their performance. There's always going to be a fly in the ointment. Your, make it your goal in life to find it and to point it out. Yes, there are going to be unfortunate positive things, Buds of growth and glimpses of improvement, but you just you, you overlook those and you focus on the shortcomings, the disappointments and the failures. And if you can't find anything to criticize, just make something up and run with it. Never praise them. Never build confidence in them. Never teach or if, never teach them how how you want them to do things. Never affirm that they're doing something right or even showing signs of improvement. Remind them again and again that they are always doing it the wrong way and coming up short. Remind them they always have done it this way and that they always will. Take every opportunity to belittle them and to make their faults known. Train them to second guess every step they take and to expect failure and disappointment before they even try. Prime them. If you do this, you will prime them to fail in everything, and you will succeed in provoking your children to anger. Seventh, be neglectful. If you want to provoke your kids, neglect your kids. Just don't be a part of their lives. It's that simple. 
Make them the smallest priority you can. You've got responsibilities on your plate. Be a busybody. And fill, fill your day with as many things so that you can justify being somewhere else, doing something else, anything other than being with them. Make a habit of not being in the home. Your wife will love that. Make a habit of not being involved in fa- family activities. And even when you are home, have long periods of time where you're engaged with work or your hobbies. Talk to your children as little as possible and put as much parenting responsibility on your spouse as she will take. I mean, provoke her while you're at it too. Two birds, one stone. And when she's tired of that, let TV and Netflix and the Xbox raise your kids and teach them their values. Let your public school teachers form their worldview and frame their ethics. Teach your kids that you have better things to do than spending time with them. Do that and you will succeed in provoking your children to anger. Eight, be legalistic. Communicate to your kids that you think their obedience to your rules is more important to you than they are. Make sure it is crystal clear and understood that order and quiet and maintaining the status quo is more important than having a good relationship with them. Teach them that appearances and public perception are more important than character and integrity. And here's another way you can kill two birds with one stone. You train them to be focused on superficialities and not matters of the heart. And that will undermine their relationship with God as well as with you. Lastly, be hypocritical. Be hypocritical. And we're going we're gonna to touch on this one again uh, next week as it relates to positively fulfilling what we're supposed to be doing as fathers. Break your own rules. And hold your children to a standard that you don't adhere to. When it comes to your spirituality and your faith, absolutely, by, by, no, uh, by no means are you to practice what you preach. Talk, make a lot of big talk about how important reading scripture is and prayer and going to church and, and how church is so important, but don't actually model that in your life. Implement a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do model of authority. And teach them that the bottom line is your own subjective standard of satisfaction and that transcendent values and principles, you know, the things that, that God says, the things that, that, that God requires of us, the things God says to do and not to do, those kind of things. Tell them that what Dad says right now is what matters, and what God has said in His Word, not so much. Give them conflicting messages about the sincerity of your faith and the veracity of Christianity and the truthfulness of the Bible. If you do that, you will succeed in, in giving them the proper foundation for crumbling when they go out and stand on their own two feet and get challenged by their college professor or their neighbor or their boyfriend or girlfriend or anybody really 
and they will enter a crisis of faith having no suitable foundation or positive example to look back on. You want to provoke your children to anger? Be a hypocritical Christian dad. Now, this list is not exhaustive. There are many... These are a few of the many, many ways that we dads can exasperate and frustrate our children and our wives. Right? Ladies, we don't... You don't want you don't want dad acting like this in the home for your sake either, right? These are the ways we can exasperate and frustrate our children. These are the ways we provoke them to anger and in so doing, these are the ways we undermine the growth and the development of their faith that Paul says we are responsible to cultivate. Pastor Kent Hughes says our children are like fragile flowers so easily crushed by, by their parents or they can be cultivated and made to blossom beyond expectation. You can crush them or you can cultivate them. What are you going to do? Don't hamstring their cultivation by crushing them through carelessness, through selfishness, or brutality. Paul says, God says, rather, do fathers do not provoke your children to anger exercise sensitivity and demonstrate care and thoughtfulness in how you interact with them especially in how you raise and in how you discipline them if you're a man who is given over to anger and who 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 explodes when it comes time to discipline your children and to exer- execute your authority, you should be walking on eggshells so that you do not overstep your bounds. Do not provoke your children to anger. Do not let your sin hurt your kids. Carefully weigh the potential impact of your words. Carefully weigh how you address them, how you speak to them, how you treat them. The way you look at them, you know, even even you don't even have to open your mouth. Just oftentimes our, our face and our body language says enough. Watch what you're saying with your words and with your body. Watch the way, weigh carefully how you treat them, what you do to them. Weigh and scrutinize the potential impact of your words and your actions before you say or do them. Think before you speak. Discern before you act. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We're going to get to the positive one next week because I really wanted to build on that last one um, not to be hypocritical because there's there's been a tendency in the church for a while um, where parents have given their kids over to the youth pastor. They've given their kids over to the, to, the, to, the, to the care of the church, and they say, hey, you know, I'm not really good at this. I'm not equipped to this. Or if they're, if they're being honest, I don't want to do this. I don't feel like spending time with them. I don't feel like, like uh, reading scripture on a daily basis with them or catechizing them or, or uh, tackling life's tough questions. Here, you do it. 
there's a there's a there's a sentiment where dads say, I want this for my kids, but I really don't want it for myself. And that is a, that is an incredibly destructive way to provoke your kids. And so I, I want to dedicate another week to that as well as the positive aspect of, of, of actively, faithfully, effectively bringing your kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I just don't have time to do that right now. So let's pray. Father, please help us fathers to help us to be the, the kind of fathers to our kids that, that you are to us. The scriptures tell us in no short order that you are a patient God. You are a patient father. You you are slow to anger. You, you are quick to be patient. Your patience in, endures. Your patience is strong. Your patience is long-lasting. Your forbearance is incredible. The the claim that you are a God of wrath and fire and brimstone, that as Dawkins says, you are an angry ogre. That is, that is clearly some, that is something said by someone who clearly has not read the Bible. You are so patient with sinful, erring people like us. Help us to be patient towards our kids who have sinned against us in far, far minor ways far less egregious ways than we have towards you. Help us to to model your patience. Help us to appropriate your patience and, and your forbearance and your love. Help us to forgive them as you forgive us. Help us to be gracious and merciful to them as you have been towards us. And Father, please forgive us for the many, many times that we have not measured up to the kinds of fathers we should be. Help us to also be as focused and dedicated and committed to their well-being and to their growth as you are towards your people. Father, help us to be like you. Amen.